This is Jorge Facinetti, and you're listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. In today's podcast, Dr. Blevins talks about adrenal Cushing's or adrenal hypercortisolism, which he explains are endogenous forms of cortisol secretion related to adrenal disease. Here's Dr. Blevins. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News, podcasting to you today from Northern California, where we have literally been drenched with rain for months on months. Um, I guess the only saving grace is that... uh, I'm not up in Tahoe where Jorge is located, where they're buried in probably 10 to 15 feet of snow. I much rather prefer the rain, Uh, but I'm ready for springtime to come into full force and uh, months ahead where we'll not have any rain whatsoever. We certainly needed it in California. Uh, I think the water table and reservoirs are up and uh, our governor just declared that we're out of our drought. I'm not sure if that was a politically motivated statement or whether it's true, but at any rate, we should be out of our drought with all of this water that's uh, come out of the sky over the past few months. I thought I would talk to you today about uh, Cushing's, and not Cushing's disease, which you might expect, given that this is a, a pituitary practice that I have at the University of California, San Francisco, and that this is pituitary world news, but um, we encounter patients with adrenal Cushing's as well. Uh, and this is largely because patients with hypercortisolism are referred. We evaluate, and it turns out to be um, a situation where there is uh, adrenal hypercortisolism that's ACTH independent rather than pituitary hypercortisolism. And uh, sometimes our patients with pituitary disease have uh, uh, adrenal disease as well. It's totally unrelated to the pituitary problem, but uh, it's out there. Uh, some background about adrenal hypercortisolism. So generally speaking, we, dev- we have devised a terminology where we call Cushing's disease, uh, hypercortisolism that's ACTH dependent related to a pituitary tumor. And then there's the syndrome of ectopic ACTH hypersecretion where you have ACTH secretion by a neuroendocrine tumor somewhere else that drives the adrenals to produce too much cortisol and leads to the cushion weight features. And then there's ACTH independent hypercortisolism that's usually related to adrenal disease. I will say, however, the most common cause of someone looking cushion weight, if you see them on the street or in the mall or in the doctor's waiting room, is the fact that they're taking exogenous steroids. And it's important to keep that in mind. But for those patients who aren't taking steroids and who look cushion weight or those patients who have adrenal adenomas, the concern is Do they have hypercortisolism or do they have autonomous cortisol production where the cortisol levels may be normal, but it's producing an abnormal rhythm? And we'll talk more about that. But generally what we're talking here are the endogenous forms of cortisol secretion related to adrenal disease. These are ACTH dependent, meaning that the adrenal is making cortisol um, without the regulation by the hypothalamus and the pituitary based on what the body's needs are. It's autonomous, meaning that it's producing it on its own. 
those are terms you might see in the literature that, that can be sort of attached to, to this situation where the adrenals as factories are producing cortisol that's not called for by the, by the supervisors, namely the hypothalamus and the pituitary, which integrate cortisol levels and other things going on in the body to tell the adrenal glands how much cortisol to make. There are a number of adrenal diseases that can result in hypercortisolism or autonomous cortisol production. And the most common one being an adrenal adenoma or a tumor that's usually benign of the adrenal gland. These are usually smaller lesions. And there is a spectrum of size. Um, Generally speaking, you tend not to see very high cortisol levels or even abnormal cortisol levels until these lesions reach two to two and a half centimeter in size. Uh, smaller tumors can produce cortisol around the clock with the loss of diurnal variation that can significantly affect the patient's well-being, and we'll talk later about how it can do so, uh, but they may not have elevated cortisol levels. It's just cortisol produced during the period of time during the day when you're not usually supposed to produce cortisol. And um, the other end of the of the disease spectrum pathophysiologically is patients with adrenal cancer. These are people usually with very large tumors that inefficiently produce cortisol but can result in hypercortisolism and cushionwood features as well. And then we have another group of disorders called the adrenal hyperplasias, which can be one-sided or both, so it's unilateral or bilateral disease. And they can be micronodular with a set of small nodules affecting both adrenal glands or macronodular where the nodules are, you're able to see them by CT and they're larger than a centimeter in size. Sometimes one adrenal has micronodular change and the other has macronodular change. Usually there's macronodular changes with interspersed micronodular changes. Uh, we don't understand the pathophysiology of this condition, but there are a number of different situations that have been reported that can be associated with these changes. One of them is the ectopic uh, production and of uh, certain receptors that uh, can um, basically turn on cortisol production during certain situations, such as with pregnancy or with eating. Another is a disorder called Carney complex, which is associated with a number of different features, including myxomas in the heart, pigmented skin lesions around the face, myxomas in the breast and other areas, and adrenal hyperplasia. Another would be McCune-Albright syndrome, which is a particular mutation in a signal transduction pathway that can lead to a number of things, uh, including skin uh, hyperpigmentation in some usual spots that don't necessarily cross the midline, uh, sometimes acromegaly and pituitary hyperplasia, but adrenal hyperplasia and Cushing's as well. And that, in fact, has been reported in childhood as a common cause of Cushing's in, in childhood when it's related to adrenal disease. So there are a number of different disease states. Those are the main ones, adrenal adenomas, adrenal cancers, and adrenal hyperplasias. Um, when it comes to the degree of hypercortisolism, it does seem to be directly related to the size of the, of the adrenal tissue that's producing cortisol in excess, but it's also related to the differentiation or how, how close to normal the cells are. For example, the adrenal cancers large amounts of adrenal tissue, but inefficient producers of cortisol. And you can see normal cortisol levels are slightly abnormal levels, whereas a small tumor 
usually you, you can see amazing uh, cortisol levels in some people's small tumors, whereas others don't have uh, very high levels. So it's not only the amount of tissue, but also the efficiency with which that tissue produces uh, cortisol levels. A bit about the biochemistry. So if you have an adrenal factory, say an adenoma producing cortisol in excess, or even in abnormal time frames, it can suppress ACTH or lower ACTH. And we, we used to use cutoffs of ACTH levels less than 25, raise the possibility of adrenal hypercortisolism, but levels between 10 and 25 can still be pituitary. So less than 10 is almost always adrenal. Uh, and that number changes depending on the research article you use and the type of ACTH assay that's employed insofar as to, to deciding whether this is a ACTH dependent or independent. But at any rate, cortisol suppresses ACTH, which then leads to less of a signal going to the adrenal glands. So whatever adrenal tissue is not affected by the disease state will usually become atrophic and go to rest, if you will. Uh, as a result of that, if you have a pure cortisol-producing adenoma, your the rest of your adrenal tissue on the other side and the rest of the adrenal and that affected adrenal gland usually become atrophic in sleep. So they don't make cortisol. And they don't make the other steroid hormones as well. So DHEA sulfate levels usually fall. Of course, aldosterone production is usually normal unless cortisol levels are high enough to overwhelm the 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase enzyme in the kidney. And, and then where cortisol will act as a mineralocorticoid because it has access to the mineralocorticoid receptor since it's not being converted to cortisone and thus inactivated. Uh, so, but generally speaking, you shut off DHEA sulfate. So the classic presentation is DHEA sulfate is low, ACTH is low or low normal, and the cortisol level is inappropriately normal, secreted in an abnormal variation, or even frankly high. Now, of course, in patients with adrenal carcinoma, you can see coexisting aldosterone production and also adrenal androgen production in addition to the high cortisol. So if you saw all hormone levels were elevated, that would make you think more of a carcinoma in some of those patients. A couple of, the, of interesting things that have been observed in those patients with what we call mild autonomous cortisol secretion is that they may have normal urine-free cortisol levels, but it's the cortisol secreted throughout the day that leads to the loss in adrenal variation. So you may see elevated late-night salivary cortisol levels in some of these patients, or if you do a salivary cortisol profile, as I do, where you check cortisol levels in the morning, in the afternoon, and at bedtime through the saliva, usually six samples a day, you'll see a loss of the adrenal variation. Uh, even in patients who don't have hypercortisolism. And some of these patients, they do have low or low normal ACTH levels. And again, the DHA sulfate levels will fall, but they won't be hypercortisolemic. Many of them have symptoms and signs that are related to abnormal cortisol secretion, such as insomnia or weight gain, or maybe mild diabetes mellitus. But generally speaking, these patients tend to um, uh, oftentimes have normal cortisol levels, but abnormal cortisol secretion. They used to be referred to in the literature as subclinical hypercortisolism, uh, but the problem is many of them have cardiometabolic problems. Uh, several studies have showed that these patients have a higher risk of developing diabetes mellitus if they don't have it at baseline. They have a higher risk of 
developing hypertension if they don't have it at baseline. Uh, and they can develop uh, other complicated cardiac uh, events uh, over time if you follow them long enough. Um, so I don't like the term subclinical. Others have osteoporosis, for example, uh, and, uh, and depression and anxiety. So I don't like the term subclinical for all of these reasons, that these people do have clinical features of abnormal cortisol secretion, even if they are not hypercortisolemic. Uh, so I don't like that, that term subclinical. The term that's been used to describe some of these patients is mild autonomous cortisol secretion. Um, mild meaning it's not severe. Autonomous meaning it gives credit to the fact that the adrenal glands are the factories or, or an adrenal tumor is a factory producing cortisol in excess um, in these patients. But I, I think the term mild is often misinterpreted that you don't have to do anything about it because the problem is you do have to do something about it because if you follow these patients long-term, they will develop these cardiometabolic complications that require additional therapies and additional interventions and are associated with a higher mortality rate. Interestingly, a large uh, retrospective study of over 4,000 people published by El Hassan and others showed this to be the case. And furthermore, they also showed these adrenal tumors usually don't increase in size over time. And the Cushing's doesn't usually get worse during a period of follow-up for the average study that's been reported. I think if you followed these people for a very long time, you might see cortisol levels get worse. But in the period of time that equates to probably what most doctor-patient relationship uh, longevity would be, you might not see it get worse in the four to five years that you might see a patient before they either move or you move or, or their insurance changes and they have to see another doctor. So the point is that you often have to intervene and jump in and do something when you find that they have evidence for disturbed cortisol secretion or frank hypercortisolism in association with anatomic evidence, namely CT uh, imaging, uh, illustrating that they have uh, adrenal pathology. So um, a couple of other interesting facts. If you look at my age, I'm 61. If you look at people my age and a little bit older, you might find that uh, up to 8% of people who have a CT for unrelated reasons will have an adrenal adenoma. Uh, or maybe mild, mild adrenal hyperplasia. If you study these patients carefully, you'll find that as much as 30 to 40% in some studies of those patients who have these incidental findings will have evidence of abnormal cortisol secretion. Either they're hypercortisolemic or they have the autonomous cortisol secretion where the adrenals making cortisol without regulation by the body it's, it's secreted throughout the period of time, so patients may have symptoms, uh, and, uh, and they haven't been recognized beforehand as having a problem, but maybe they have type 2 diabetes mellitus, uh, or hypertension, or osteoporosis, or premature osteoporosis. Uh, and so th these patients are now coming to attention. Um, some of them are thought to have what we refer to as hidden hypercortisolism, where they have a situation, and this was a study that was coined by some investigators who reported on this, uh, this situation where they have a gateway diagnosis, if you will, hypertension or diabetes or osteoporosis, 
and then they're evaluated because of this and then found to have Cushing's. And most of these people didn't really have Cushingoid features, but they're found to have pathologic cortisol secretion. And the most common cause of uh, the uh, pathologic cortisol secretion in, in these individuals happens to be adrenal disease. When it came to those patients who had osteoporosis, it was you know probably nearly split between adrenal and pituitary. But uh, if you looked at those with diabetes and hypertension or diabetes or hypertension, it was mostly adrenal disease, indicating that some of these people really do have a problem and um, uh, le leading to my recommendations and the recommendations of others and, and some of the industry companies that, that have drugs to treat patients with uh, hypercortisolism have certainly helped us understand this, that the, the, the patients need to be evaluated if they have an incidental adrenal finding on CT, because this is how you case find patients who have abnormal cortisol secretion that may be leading to cardiometabolic complications and decreased longevity. So it's, uh, it's well taken that these patients need to be evaluated. There was one study done uh, looking at radiological findings where only a, a, a fraction of people who had incidental adrenal nodules underwent investigation to determine the cause. But then when radiologists put in the report that patients should undergo evaluation, including certain tests, a greater proportion of people were actually studied, and many of them were referred to endocrinologists. But even in that setting, only about three quarters of the endocrinologists still did the workups. Um, and given that the 30 to 40 percent of people will have abnormal cortisol secretion, I think that all patients with adrenal adenomas should certainly, should certainly be evaluated, probably by an endocrinologist, and all those patients should should undergo uh, diagnostic testing to make sure that they don't have a functioning tumor or disease process related to the adrenal glands. So this is a diagnosis you usually backed into. You find the adrenal lesion, and then you do the workup and find that uh, the patient has abnormal cortisol secretion and needs treatment. And, and in many cases, this disease situation makes sense, especially when you look at some of the symptoms and signs that uh, the patients have presented with. Again, most likely cardiometabolic complications and concerns. So what I'd like to do next is tell you about two of my recent patients. I think I had three patients with adrenal Cushing's in the past week, uh, and I'll tell you about two of them that I think are pretty illustrative. Uh, probably in the past six months, I've seen 10 or more. Uh, and again, it's you have to turn the stones over to find these patients and get them to appropriate therapy. The first one I'll share with you is a 75-year-old woman who has a history of a gonadotroph adenoma, the pituitary gland. And uh, she had surgery in about 2014, uh, did well, was rendered disease-free, was following up with her primary physician, and uh, has no evidence of recurrence to date. Um, she was having some pelvic pain, had an MRI to evaluate it, has an unusual presacral mass that they believe is a neuroma of some type. But during the process of this was found to have a 2.6 centimeter uh, uh, adrenal uh, adenoma and um, was uh, evaluated by her endocrinologist and then referred to look at the results. Um, and interestingly, her cortisol level in the serum, which I always check, but it's not recommended. It's always nice to have the baseline results, though, just to correlate and 
see where you are. Uh, her AM cortisol was 22.9, which is a little elevated probably. It's in the normal range, but probably a little elevated, but it's very inappropriate given that her, her ACTH level was undetectable. And that was repeated and found to be undetectable. So clearly you have evidence of cortisol autonomy in this patient with a uh, high normal cortisol level and a suppressed ACTH level. She had not had any history of uh, steroid supplementation whatsoever. Uh, she had a DHA sulfate that was seven, uh, excuse me, that was 23, not 73, it was 23, which was in the low part of the normal range. And uh, when you look at this pattern, of uh, the um, ACTH low, DHA sulfate low, cortisol level uh, normal, uh, it pretty much is consistent with adrenal hypercortisolism uh, as a consequence probably of this adrenal adenoma. Now her endocrinologist also evaluated and proved that there was no hyperaldosteronism and no evidence for pheochromocytoma. In this patient, the urine cortisol was elevated 87.2. Uh, so she has frank hypercortisolism, uh, normal range is up to 45. I see plenty of patients just like this with, with adenomas that are a little smaller who have urine cortisol levels that are high normal or normal, but they'll still have evidence of, uh, of uh, adrenal autonomy. In this patient, I didn't choose to do other studies. If the urine cortisol had been normal, I might have done a, a salivary cortisol profile to show there was a loss of diurnal variation to give me the proof in the pudding that this if you will, it's an old phrase I like to use, uh, that this uh, was indeed related to the adrenal adenoma and that there was loss of the normal diurnal rhythm. But with the elevated cortisol, the, the, the next step is to take this patient to surgery. Uh, so she's been referred for a right adrenalectomy to evaluate this particular lesion further and to see if we can resolve the hypercortisolism. Now, the next patient was referred to me by an endocrinologist that I've known for many years. Uh, she'd had a, a, a thorough investigation and, and uh, pretty much was on, uh, on the diagnosis, but just wanted another opinion to be able to talk to the patient about the most appropriate forms of therapy. And this is a 70-year-old woman that had a history of thyroid carcinoma and been treated with radioiodine, no evidence of recurrence whatsoever. And um, the patient had seen the doctor in follow-up and reported, uh, and the doctor noticed that there was some plethora uh, and um, some pinkish stretch marks and some, some weight gain. So uh, being an endocrinologist, an evaluation was started, and uh, the patient had uh, uh, a cortisol level that was um, normal, but it was in the high part of the normal range at 15.7. Uh, the ACTH level was low and then undetectable. We repeated it at our institution when she got some labs for us, and it was uh, undetectable when her cortisol was 15. Um, and uh, she also had a, uh, a DHA sulfate level. I can't remember the number uh, on her DHA sulfate, but uh, I think they were low normal on both occasions uh, when it was checked, sort of in the 20s and 30s or so. I can't recall exactly. And uh, she had uh, several salivary cortisol levels that uh, basically were higher than they should be. Um, and then she had a dexamethasone suppression test uh, 
that the cortisol level was 2.8. We consider 1.8 being normal, five or higher being definitely abnormal, but anything between 1.8 and five is highly suspicious and probably positive, especially if you have other data that help you uh, find the diagnosis. So when you look at the fact that she failed to suppress cortisol with dexamethasone, uh, she had an undetectable ACTH and her cortisol level was high. Now she had some suppression, as you'll see often in people with adrenal disease, until they have flagrant hypercortisolism. Uh, so you can see partial suppression in these people, but she didn't meet the criteria of going under 1.8. Uh, but you, you have several things here, the low ACTH, the low DHA sulfate, the normal serum cortisol levels, incomplete suppression with dexamethasone, uh, and uh, then you have uh, late not salivary cortisol levels elevated, indicating there's a loss of diurnal variation. So it all looks like adrenal disease uh, in this particular setting, and it's adrenal disease basically until proven otherwise. The patient might have had a urine cortisol, but I don't remember whether that, I, I don't think her urine cortisol was elevated, however. Um, the, the patient had uh, an adrenal CT. And uh, I reviewed that uh, lesion and, uh, and also her, her pituitary CT, her MRI scan, the pituitary scan was normal. But the adrenal uh, scans are very interesting. There was uh, an 8.5 millimeter lesion in the left adrenal gland, uh, another one uh, that was 21 millimeters uh, in the um, left gland. The rest of the left gland appeared to be enlarged. And then also the uh, right adrenal gland was uh, also thickened and enlarged, uh, measuring about six millimeter in thickness. Generally speaking, I think a, an adrenal gland over four to five millimeters in thickness is, is enlarged. And uh, probably four is the more accurate cutoff. I think some people use five millimeters. But to me, this patient looked as if she had bilateral uh, adrenal hyperplasia resulting in uh, adrenal hypercortisolism. Um, and the, the, the therapy probably needs to be entertained because she's developed some Cushingwood features with the plethora and the weight gain, uh, et cetera. And of course, she's at risk for cardiometabolic complications in the future. The, the way I thought about this patient as far as deciding on treatment, um, she clearly has left-sided adrenal disease and probable right-sided adrenal disease as well. Uh, one could do adrenal vein sampling. And the, the problem with that is that you often have difficulty cannulating the um, right adrenal vein. So you have to think about what you're going to do with the numbers. And my feeling was if that you did adrenal vein sampling and saw that it looked like it was the left, you're not really sure you've cannulated the right, unless the radiologist can assure you based on venography that they got the right. Um, but if you, if you did adrenal vein sampling and saw that the left was negative and the right was positive, then you would know that you probably had a right-sided disease process and could remove the, the right adrenal gland. When I was in my training at Hopkins years ago, we would take patients like this and send them for bilateral adrenalectomy, but you're trading diseases. You're taking a patient with mild autonomous cortisol hypersecretion, 
uh, and turning them into a patient with adrenal insufficiency who requires two steroids to maintain life uh, and has to be able to adjust steroids for stress, etc. So I tend not to like to proceed with uh, bilateral adrenalectomy in these patients. I, I recommended consideration for adrenal venography uh, to determine whether or not it was unilateral or bilateral. And if it's unilateral, especially suggesting it's the right, you might then take out the right side and follow the left. Um, but in the absence of, of uh, proceeding with bilateral adrenalectomy, you could treat this patient in a number of different ways. Uh, there are several drugs that can be used in hypercortisolism, and uh, many of these drugs will work for these uh, patients. A number of physicians like to treat the symptoms and signs of uh, Cushing's with mifepristone. Others like to use a, an adrenal biosynthesis inhibitor to uh, uh, inhibit uh, adrenal steroid production and to sort of regulate the cortisol levels uh, in, in that way. Uh, and there, there just are plenty of things that you can do to help this patient. I don't tend to recommend follow-up without treatment because the studies that have been done and, and look at this particular situation suggest that you would potentially have a situation with progression of cardiometabolic features and declining health in these patients with a higher mortality. So I think treatment's indicated. Uh, the other patients that I have seen in the past few weeks all had unilateral adrenal disease and uh, are candidates for uh, adrenalectomy. Um, I can think of another patient that had bilateral adrenal hyperplasia that uh, we're uh, treating with um, an adrenal steroid biosynthesis inhibitor. There's another one that uh, the surgeon had requested we treat to see if the patient notes clinical improvement, and the patient did, and now she's going to be scheduled for adrenalectomy. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways to manage this once you find it. Uh, so that's about it for today. I just wanted to talk about these interesting patients. Uh, they're adrenal Cushing's, not uh, pituitary Cushing's as I see most often. Uh, but if you have a busy pituitary practice, you're going to see a bit of everything ultimately. Uh, and um, these are just some interesting patients that came my way. Two of the ones that I've seen recently had pituitary disease and uh, then ad incidental adrenal findings. Um, some of the others were worked up because of clinical symptoms and signs. Uh, but if you keep your eyes open uh, and your ears to the ground, you're going to see and hear these patients coming your way. Uh, the final um, thing I'll say uh, in closing is that all patients with adrenal pathology on CT, uh, even when it's incidental adrenal pathology, deserve to be investigated for hormone hypersecretory states, uh, and, and, the, and the questions must be uh, designed to answer, uh, do they have a viachromocytoma? Uh, do they have aldosterone hypersecretion? Do they have cortisol hypersecretion? And is there any likelihood that this uh, lesion is malignant, or does it represent a myelolipoma? Um, uh, uh, and so on. Those are, the, those are the main issues that should be considered uh, in these particular patients. Well, I hope you found these to be interesting patients, and um, I wish you all a, a, a good day, uh, whatever part of your day you're in. For me, it's uh, evening, so I'll say have a good evening to those uh, 
listening in the evening, but a good rest of your day if you happen to be catching this at some other time. Once again, Dr. Lewis Blevins, Pituitary World News. Uh, take care. A quick reminder to tune in to Pituitary World News Live Talk calling program every other Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can get more information on these programs at pituitaryworldnews.org, where you will also find over 650 original articles and over 150 podcasts on pituitary disease, related conditions, and other helpful information. Thank you for listening.